Hello and welcome to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today I talk to Steve Eby. Steve is one of the busiest drummers in Nashville who has carved out a niche for himself by working with many bands in town with strong reputations. The Long Players and a Steely Dan tribute band called 12 Against Nature are two great examples. Steve also has a strong teaching practice with over 50 students. To find out more about this podcast and others, go to workingdrummer.net. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, and also on iTunes. Here is Steve Eby. What keeps you busy? What's on your plate full-time? Well, in a nutshell, you know, I was trying to get off the road as soon as I got on the road, actually. You know, I got to Nashville and um, was told you can't make any money playing in town. Right. And I thought, well, that's a nut waiting to be cracked. Yeah. And so so now I have, you know, this sort of off-the-radar career that I really cherish where I've got a slew of cover bands that actually make good money and I have fun because the musicians are good mm-hmm. and I teach a bunch of drum lessons and I get to you know make my own hours and schedule with that and then the newest thing my old band Human Radio that brought me to Nashville yeah. has just recorded a new album or we're kind of in the process of finishing it Yeah. and so for a change I've gotten to do something very creative where I get to play the way I want to and co-write the songs and, and we're going to put this out independently about to launch a Kickstarter campaign in the next couple of weeks. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, I want to get to all that stuff because I think that was one of the things that uh, intrigues me about how you stay busy. And as a matter of fact, uh, people don't know, but we got together. I've known you since I've moved to town, you know, probably over 15 years ago. And um, we got together for lunch not too long ago to kind of talk about all the things that you're doing, uh, how you stay busy in town, how you, you know, juggle teaching uh, having a son, doing all those things, you know, kind of balancing life, and yet trying to, um, or doing what you do in town and not, so. Uh, but anyways, uh, I thought you were from Memphis, but you're not from Memphis originally. Right. Born in Joplin, Missouri. Okay. And lived there till I was 17. I, I got out of high school in 80, so... It was a little bit earlier than I was supposed to graduate, I guess, and mm-hmm. came on down to Memphis just because I was enamored with Memphis. I was going to ask you because when I was looking at your bio, I was uh, I was thinking, what what is it about Memphis? I mean, it has a history, you know. Um, actually, if you want your headphones are the right one, I got it backwards. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this is a new recording. We're going to try close miking because it seems to be a little bit clearer. Let's see how this works. You're my guinea pig, Steve, so... Sounds good, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Colin Winery, for your microphones. Uh, kick drum mic doesn't work very well. And we're outside, and there is a, uh, a wasp interested in my water. <laughs> so if uh, we have to run or edit, you'll hear that. Anyways. So, yeah, I was thinking of that. I was thinking, um, okay, Memphis, but what, what drew you to Memphis? Well, I had a band director in high school that I looked up to. He had actually gone to school somewhere near Memphis. He did not go to Memphis State, but he 
talked about doing sessions as a trumpet player mm. in Memphis and told me all about Stax Records and Al Jackson Jr. and Duck Dunn and all these characters down okay. there. And so the legend was strong in my mind. And, of course, back in those days, you know, we couldn't Google it to see what was going on. Yeah, yeah. I assumed Stax Records was alive and well yeah. when I moved there. Yeah. And, of course, it was long gone, and it was just a... Right, right, right. Run-down, empty building at that point. Yeah. And there was Beale Street. Was that, was that a vibrant music scene? I no, mean, a it, live scene There was at the no- time? nothing there. Okay. It was, it was dead as it could be yeah. in 1980. Okay. And the good news was that I got to be somewhat involved as it was renovated and came back around. Yeah, yeah. And you have a list of um, different players that you had worked with, um, Duck Dunn being one of them. Um, could you briefly talk about kind of how you got involved with some of those legends and who those legends were, especially maybe for some of the people that don't know um, I mean, kind of who these people are? That, sure. You know. When... Well, they, of course, Memphis made a really big deal about putting money into Beale Street and cleaning it up and making it an entertainment center again. Yeah. And one of the clubs that opened was called Carl Perkins Blue Suede Shoe. Yeah. And I got hired to do the house gig at Carl Perkins Blue Suede Shoe. Well, how and old were you? I would have been maybe 22. I would have just graduated Memphis State. Okay. And I'd been playing around town in cover bands and whatnot yeah. for years at that point. Yeah. But um there you know, there was some competition for this gig because it was an every night thing that paid well. Mm-hmm. And everybody was after that. Because yeah. the thing about Memphis is there's great music, but there wasn't a, really there wasn't ever great money. There was okay money. Mm-hmm. And we learned to think of that as great. Yeah. But I so I had that gig and was given the mistaken impression that Carl Perkins was going to play with us every night. <laughs> but as it turned out, it was really just kind of a bar band that played several nights a week, and then he would come in on Saturday night and do, you know, 20 minutes of his hits, which was still great. It was yeah. so good to play with a legend like that. Yeah. And uh, we never rehearsed with him, not even the first time. He showed up, he walked on stage, plugged in his Telecaster, and he turned around to me and he goes, this here's a little number called Matchbox. You ever heard of it? And I said, yes, sir. He said, count it off then. <laughs> you had to have the tempo. You had to have the groove, all this. You had to know. You couldn't lie to him right, on that. <laughs> right, right, right. And you did, did you know it? Did you actually know it? You I did, lying yeah. To? You okay? Oh, yeah, I was so concerned that I was going to be unprepared that I went and got his greatest hits and made sure I had a clue. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, there's a photograph somewhere of me with a mullet and a tie. I have that too. Sitting behind. Oh, this is related to the story. Yeah, sitting okay. behind <laughs> Carl Perkins. And he's, he looks the same as he ever did, you know. I could probably Photoshop Carl Perkins in front of that. Uh, <laughs> I've got the mullet and the tie and all that stuff. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, it sounds like almost the way broad, Broadway here in Nashville mm-hmm. was, where it was run down. It wasn't really an attractive place for... Uh, people to go to hear music but it had you know i guess renovated that area to make it more attractive um duck dunn what about that um well that beale street house gig really didn't last but i don't know two or three months that club Mm -hmm. came and went quickly as a lot of the places did Mm -hmm. and so i was still juggling i probably had three other bands that I played with. Some I was the first call guy, some I was subbing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I heard a rumor. Well, it, it was just I heard guys talking on a I was doing a jazz gig, Tux gig at the Peabody Hotel. Yeah. And there was a singer who was called Gary Love. His real name's Gary Johns, but he was one of the only white singers signed to Stax. And I don't even know if a record ever came out, but it was Gary Love and Bobby Manuel, who was the other guitar player at Stax, who played when Cropper was not there. Okay. And these guys... Steve Cropper. I didn't know... Yes, I didn't know this history when I did these wedding gigs with these guys. I just knew that these old guys did tux gigs. Mm -hmm. And they called me and they paid well, so I was there. But I heard them saying, hey man, I hear that Clapton has fired his whole band. And this was when Phil Collins was coming in to produce Clapton. So this would have been late 85, early 86, something like that. Okay. And... Duck's coming back to town, man. We got to do something. And I'm just over, I'm eavesdropping. Yeah. And I think, Duck, they must mean Duck Dunn. Yeah. And so I listened a little more and determined that, yes, that is correct. That's what's happening. And so I just started bugging them. Hey, man, if that happens, man, y'all got to call me. Come on, man. And, of course, they weren't going to call me. I was the kid that they got to play jazz with the wedding band at that point. So Uh I wasn't even in line for you know that gig because Willie Hall was sort of heir to the throne of black R&B drummers in Memphis at that moment Uh well so fast forward a few weeks Duck arrives back in town Bobby Manuel has a studio called the Daily Planet they schedule a rehearsal and I don't know if this is fact or or legend but evidently Willie was late and maybe not in the best of shape to play and there was an absence of drumsticks Uh, okay and so I got a call. Yeah. Just to salvage the afternoon. Yeah. And so I dropped whatever I was doing and drove over there at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, joined this band called Duck Dunn and the Memphis Coolers. Oh, wow. And I found out sooner rather than later that they really just kind of wanted to play weekends and take it easy because half of the band were older guys and they wanted to play golf. and Yeah. It was kind of their retirement gig, a way to play and have fun. And for myself and Ross Rice, who played Hammond B3, and Jim Spake, who played saxophone and percussion, we were hoping this was the new Memphis sound. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to write songs and record, and you know, we we ended up playing together for months and months. But I think I was probably the antsiest of the bunch. And when I realized that no matter how much I pestered these guys, we weren't going to write songs, mm. we weren't going to record, then I, I split and did something else. I see. And Ross Rice, is he's someone you're still working with, right? right. right. Was that kind of the start of that relationship, that friendship we, there? We met on the snare line at Memphis State University. Oh. He was a drummer, but he also was multi-instrumentalist and just a hugely talented guy. One if of those guys. If, if you guys don't know who Ross Rice is, look him up. Okay. And... We later formed the band Human Radio together. That's right. Okay. But we had talked about playing together a lot more than we played together back in those days. And I helped him get the gig with Duck Uh because we didn't have a keyboard player. And Ross was with a band on Motown called Fingerprint. Mm -hmm. And they actually called him Dwight because he was the only white boy. He was the white boy. (laughs) So his nickname was Dwight. He's got a solo album named Dwight. <laughs> That's awesome. But they were in Singapore for some odd reason, and I had the hardest time getting in touch with him in Singapore to say, "Man, if you come back home soon, you can play Hammond B three with Duck Dunn's new band." And he's like, "Well, I got to finish this tour, but 
I'll be there in six days. Right. Well, gosh, even trying to get a hold of somebody today in Singapore mm-hmm. isn't. Well, it's it, it's a lot easier done, but early '80s, <clears throat> mid '80s, that I can I can only imagine. Yeah, we've had a long friendship. So Ross just moved back to Nashville a couple months ago. Okay. Okay. Um, what did you? What was your major in at Memphis? Memphis State. University? Yeah. Okay. Now it's called University of Memphis. They just changed the name a few years ago. Okay. But um, well, I got to Memphis. And I really wasn't sure why I was there. My parents were told it was to go to college, but <laughs> to me, my my high school band had actually done really well and were on the verge of a record deal and opening for some big names, but mm-hmm. lost a member that was one of the primary lead singers, and so the band fell apart. And so my goal was, I'm going to go to Memphis, I'm going to find great musicians, I'm going to get a record deal. Yeah. I'm 17, I don't know anything. Sure. But I was very determined, and so I got down there, and the first auditions I heard of were for a drum and bugle corps. Okay. And I thought, well, okay, maybe this is plan B. Um, Steve Gadd played in drum and bugle corps. Billy Cobham played in drum and bugle corps. Couldn't hurt me, right? Right, right. So I auditioned and got in and did that for the summer before my freshman year and the summer after. That was a that was a great experience. It really taught me a lot about listening and timing and rudiments and I thought I knew rudiments in oh, high school but yeah, right. you know, we didn't ever have that kind of training. Right. That that's something that I I missed I I feel like I missed out on. Um I've already had a couple conversations with players, well not only on the podcast but you know, in my life that mm-hmm. <laughs> who've done drum and bugle corps. And uh, there's something about, especially their their facility with their hands that I envy very much so. Well, probably the one takeaway that I got from that was that you can't practice really with your brain. Your hands and feet don't have brains, so they just need massive amounts of repetition okay. to really get, you know, super refined skill. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I yeah. mean, do you think that as a teacher that that's, that's something that you push? It totally is. I, I spend half of my day trying to convince them that this is true. Yeah. You know, that just each student, one after the other, you've, you've got to do more repetition. Just just sit there and don't think and know that you're doing good work. Oh, yeah. I you don't know. Because yeah, they yeah. would put us out in the hot sun, and of course this was before sunscreen, and we would practice – just downstroke, upstroke exercises for 30 minutes as the first warm-up, and then on to the second warm-up. And we would practice drumline only, just doing warm-ups for an hour or two. Oh, and by the time the day was over, we'd been out there playing for eight hours. Wow. And no wonder we got good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I remember at first, it was hard for me to get used to, because I was used to practicing for an hour and stopping. Right. Or something like that yeah. up, up till that age. And that was a good thing for drum and bugle corps. And so, you know, my mom's wishes came true. I did end up going to Memphis State. And it was just a, a really serendipitous thing because I managed to get a great scholarship to go there based on these drum and bugle corps skills. Oh, okay. It just was a coincidence that the, they were revamping that marching band and they wanted to get some core guys in there, so they were offering free rides and out-of-state tuition and the whole deal. Nice. I had applied to Berkeley and North Texas and University of Miami uh-huh. and was accepted, and they said, pay up, buddy, because we don't have any scholarships for you. Right. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I'll go to Memphis State. 
Well, right. And I hear stories of, and you know, with those reputations of some of those schools, um, a lot of the people that go there are left to their own devices. I mean, you have great teachers, you have great programs, you're surrounded. But there is a lot, you have to own up to your own growth. You have to um, take a lot of responsibility yourself to to learn and to grow. Uh, Even at someplace like North Texas or or Berkeley, it's not, there's no guarantee and I feel like, and maybe it's because I kind of had a similar experience as you, I went to a school that is not one of those schools. <laughs> but um, if, if you work hard enough, you can, you can learn. And, right. Um, yeah. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I really feel like that was a unique experience that, that gave me kind of a self-starter attitude. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've, Well, maybe I already had that to some degree, but... I've heard stories of really accomplished professionals that we both know right. who were at one of the superstar schools and, you know, they were studying with the assistant to the guy that you've heard of. Yeah. And in Memphis, there wasn't necessarily a great drum set teacher there. But at one point, I, uh, I just sought out what I th- who I thought was the greatest jazz drummer in Memphis, a guy named Doug Garrison. And... I managed to convince the dean of the music school to let me go pay for private lessons with this guy, and he would give me college credit for it. And it worked? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because they had a series of graduate assistants that came through, and and some were stronger than others. And by the time I was junior, senior in college, I was ready for something more than what was being handed out there. So they let me do that. You know? Well, you're showing that initiative that I think that's what I'm talking about. It's like you're such you're driven in such a way that you're going to seek out what works for you mm-hmm. and and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And in answer to your question that led to this whole thing was it's a Bachelor of Music, and then it says something about jazz performance and studio emphasis. It was one of these early commercial music programs where they were still kind of making it up. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. and as we went along, so I still did a traditional music degree for the first two years and had to do the snare drum and the timpani and the marimba, and I played in the orchestra, and I was marching in the marching band because that was paying my tuition. Yeah. And then I was playing in the jazz band, and I was studying drum sets. So the part of it that was difficult was I would have two different drum lessons every week, and each lesson was a full hour, and one was classical percussion and one was drum set. So I had a lot of practicing to do. Yes. And I was trying to teach a little bit and play in cover bands and bar bands at night, so there wasn't much sleeping. No, no. And I remember the the music building would lock at 11 p.m., and you couldn't get back in until 7 a.m., and that didn't work because we needed more hours (laughs) of practice time. So one of the graduate assistants, who was also one of my uh, drumline instructors, a guy named Rich Cezani, great rudimental drummer from... uh, I think New Jersey. He's been in Memphis now forever. He hipped me to the fact that if you went in the practice rooms and at about quarter till 11, you just turned off the light and stayed really quiet, the security guy would come by and check the lock on the door and then he would leave the building and then you could practice all night. Right, right. I remember you telling me about that. Um, (laughs) That was a real breakthrough for me because suddenly I I had unlimited practice time, but the sleep was still a problem. Sure. But that's the age when you can get away with that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Well, one other thing that was interesting about Memphis that I think is relevant to a Nashville working drummer conversation is that 
when I was a punk kid filling in with a band or playing with a band early on, if I didn't lock the tempo right in the pocket like they thought I should, or if I played a little too busy or, you know, put in a flam where that wasn't the appropriate thing or a double stroke here or something, these guys let me know in no uncertain terms that I was messing up. Yeah. There was none of this, hey, good job, buddy, and then no call back. Oh, you know, okay. They let me know. Some of those on, later gigs you were talking about? Just like, ev- almost well, every gig I remember having in Memphis, there was harsh and immediate criticism uh-huh. from the other players if you were not doing something right. And I don't know if that's changed everywhere or if that's just different in Nashville, but it's always been different than that in Nashville. I've had people hurl a bottle at my head because they thought I was rushing a tempo. Yeah. And this is, you know, young young kid and scared me to death, but I got my tempo together. Right, right. Well, and it does make you wonder because um, I think there's, there's different vibes in different cities and different different environments. And, and you always hear stories of like East Coast versus West Coast and that fake niceness, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the South or the, you know, you get that sweetie talk and you just it's kind of hard to know it's like what what, do they really like what i was doing do they like Mm -hmm. me or are they just being polite well you know i've heard other drummers talk around town and even even a little bit on some of the other podcasts you've done that i've listened Mm -hmm. to where they went in did a great job felt like they charmed everybody everybody said fantastic we'll call you back for the next one and then you don't get the call back and you don't know why yeah i think that that and and of course it is relationships and there are a lot more factors yeah that come into play so that's invaluable i mean that's invaluable especially as a young person to to kind of know to hear those things so you can have Mm -hmm. that constructive criticism make the adjustments and 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 learn from that i think we'd all like to have a little bit more feedback of course than we get of course yeah yeah uh it's not always the easiest pill to swallow but um Mm. in the long run there's definitely times that uh, I need more information uh, sure. yeah, than just the uh, lack of call. <laughs> mm-hmm. My dad was a jukebox man, okay. and so we always had records in the house. There was a piano as well, and my mom played a little bit, but I don't really ever remember her playing for us. Um, I have photos of me riding my tricycle around and around the jukebox down in the basement and they had a little step stool where i could get up and push the buttons and we had all the first beatles and stone singles on there and so i was just smitten that was my favorite toy even from before i can remember yeah just playing the records and then when i was a little older i could get all the free 45s i wanted from dad's shop once they came off the jukeboxes okay and I remember being second or third grade, and I was already daydreaming about having a band and talking to my friends about someday when we form our band. And nobody had instruments yet. Nobody could play anything, (laughs) but I had a plan anyway. Right, right. And I remember seeing various drummers on television. It might have been the first season of The Partridge Family, or it might have been some of those Mm -hmm. variety shows that were on where the drummer was very obviously not playing the track that you're listening to. <laughs> and I, I was outraged. Or and obvious to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, would, I would declare to my family or whomever was in the room, I could do better than that. He's not playing that. And so they started going, wow, this kid's serious about the drums. So maybe we should. So around third grade, I got an old 1959 Ludwig Pioneer that had calf heads on it oh, as wow. a Christmas present. Nice. 
and started taking drum lessons from the scariest old man. I do not know his name. He scared me to death. In fact, he was such a bad teacher for a small child that I got scared and quit finally. Oh, really? I just came home one day so discouraged. I said, drums are too hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try guitar. <laughs> but I, I didn't really ever stop playing drums. I just had that snare drum, you know, and I remember putting on my dad's giant headphones with the curly cord and playing vinyl albums and like flipping over my wastebasket and having my snare drum with the practice pad, maybe some shoe boxes and creating a little drum set yeah. that I could bash on, at least in my imagination. Working on stuff like It Don't Come Easy by Ringo Starr mm -hmm. and I can't remember what some of those other songs were, but I had some stuff worked out before I ever sat down at a drum set. Human Radio came together in Memphis and this, so just to fill in the gap, I left the Duck Dunn group because I was frustrated that we weren't writing original music and trying to do more mm -hmm. rather than just gig on the weekends. And my plan at that moment was save up massive amounts of cash, move to L.A. Oh, okay. So I quickly got back on the frat circuit. I had done this before, the whole southeastern thing, and some of you guys listening will know what I'm talking about. There was a gold mine in the 80s for bands that would go around and play frat parties all through the southeast. Yeah. And so I, I formed, with some good buddies of mine, a great little band that was a four-piece band called Upsetting the Mothers. <laughs> and it was it was a little punk rock, and it was, you know, just a loud rock band on many levels. But we figured out how to streamline our touring machine, and we had one of those Hertz Penske's trucks yeah. where we would lay the drum riser on top of the gear and put sleeping bags back there and we had the the dryer you know the the vent hose from a washer and dryer setup yeah. that went from the dash into the back cabin so that we could get heating or oh, cooling wow. back there completely dangerous completely illegal <laughs> if that had ever rolled over it would have been like a blender what was the name of the band? Upsetting the Mothers. It sounds like Upsetting the Mothers of Invention. That's probably what it should have been called. And we managed to work constantly because we carried self-contained PA and lights, mm -hmm. and we had a two-man crew and a four-man band, and we just we kind of never slept. We would drive from Memphis to Athens, Georgia, play a gig, leave after the gig and drive to someplace else, and it was never close, but we just worked all the time, and we did make a bunch of money. But by the time I was ready to try... Well, I, I had made one visit to L.A. and tried to live there right out of college and failed miserably and realized I needed a lot more money before I went back. But by the time I had spent a couple years in this band trying to save up my L.A. money, I had a house fire mm. and lost everything and foolishly had no insurance because it was a little rental and I didn't have renter's insurance. Mm. And that set me back. Yeah. So I never made it to L.A. And it's kind of okay because I like visiting L.A., but I don't really want to live there. I think Nashville's the place. Yeah. Greg Morrow, as a matter of fact, who everybody listening probably knows, really came to my aid after that fire and sold me some drums at a pretty severe discount so just to help. he was living in Memphis at the time. Yeah, I've known Greg since about... 1980 or 81 oh, okay. he was i think he was graduating memphis state about the time i was coming in as a freshman okay and he would come hang out with us at the games and sit with the pep band and sometimes he would borrow my snare drum because he just felt like playing wow 
That's crazy. But yeah, Greg's been a great help to me, you know, in Memphis and in Nashville. And Chad Cromwell also. Okay. Um, speaking of Memphis and, and help, this is, I've told this story many times. Um, I had a gig in Memphis and uh, the, the, the singer I was working with uh, swung by my house uh, with a truck and trailer and uh, we threw all the drums in the trailer and hit the road. And from Nashville down to there is, what, four hours? Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to the club. I get my drums out. I look. Oh, no. I forgot my drum rug. <laughs> no big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay? Talk to the bar owner. We got something you can use. Perfect. So I'm casually opening up cases, putting my drums out, and I look around. I forgot my drum case with uh, the hardware case. The hardware case, like everything. That's different. <laughs> that's different. Like I, a minor tragedy averted with the with the drum rug, but the actual hardware case, everything I need to hold every piece of equipment except for the kick drum, but no pedal, yeah, no seat, no nothing, yeah. So the first thing I co- comes to mind is to call you because I knew that you had lived in Memphis, and, and, I, and I said, Steve, man, I, I explained to you the the situation, and you proceeded to give me a, a list of names. Well, the first person, and I, I, he said, we'll try this guy, and he was the drummer for Jerry Lee Lewis. And It was Robert Hall, and okay. he, he was the guy that ran the Memphis Drum Shop when it was first started. Oh, okay. And I was the very first and only teacher there okay. for a while, and of yeah. course, it's, in your sense, it's become a really big operation, but Robert Hall still plays for Jerry Lee Lewis. Okay. And I wonder, I was, that's great what guy. I was wondering. Well, I immediately called him and, uh, and explained to him the situation. I said, look, I, I, you know, I can play, I can pay you cartage. He said, man, don't worry about it. If you know Steve, he goes, just come by. Where are you? How far away? You know, I was literally five minutes from the studio where he had a box of hardware waiting for me. I, you know, ran there, picked it up. Uh, came back and we ended up, I think, starting five minutes late mm-hmm. from the, after all that, and uh, you know, couldn't mount the tom, but I, I got through, sure. and it was amazing. You know, That's it was great. it was really it was really nice, and I I still paid him, but he was I probably could have gotten away without paying him, but mm-hmm. I, I was like, no no no, you saved my ass here, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, I had uh, forgotten about that, but that's that's fantastic. Yeah, Robert's such a good guy. Yeah, yeah, um, and I know everybody's got stories like that, and and I don't know when I pack for trips or family things, I forget stuff right and left. But I rarely ever, and maybe that would be my um, my wife attesting to maybe where my priorities are. But I never forget gear, mm-hmm. you know, and because I had that one experience that you learn so much. I, I've definitely tried to develop a habit of taking inventory even inventory. writing writing some stuff down cuz sometimes you know you're you're on that that one off gig you're filling in with somebody and you're packing the drums as fast as you can backstage and the loaders are just taking cases away before the drums even in it sometimes yep. and they go cram it all in a truck or a bus bay yeah. and if you don't go down there and eyeball your gear oh, there's yeah. no telling where your symbols will end up Oh yeah, you know that's funny. I was I was uh, I don't know about five years ago. I was I was doing a Broadway gig and I threw my uh, snare drum and my cymbals and my case uh, inside, uh, right on the side of the stage. The other band was uh, coming off and they were getting in their truck and trailer and they were heading out of town for an out of town gig. I come back in after parking my car. I look for my snare drum. It's it's I can't find it anywhere. And they had, the band that was leaving had help. 
They had grabbed my snare drum and loaded it into their trailer and were leaving. I literally chased them down the street, <laughs> stopped them, and uh, the drummer was like, "I'm, you know, I didn't load my stuff out, and my my snare drum was sitting inside their wow. their trailer." So, if any of you guys have been putting off stenciling your name on your cases, this is the time. <laughs> right, that, that's a good point. I didn't have the I had the little name tag on it. Mm-hmm. It was my brass scratch. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I guess I I read ran us down another side path but yeah in memphis i did the frat band yeah. had the house fire yeah so had to keep doing the frat band i thought i was almost done i thought i had my money saved but i had you to, were you, but you, and the plan was to go to la right but maybe the fire the fire delayed and you know inevitably kept la from ever happening because i stayed in memphis and kept working and i was really kind of hating the frat circuit by this point but nothing else was... Really? What is it about that? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start me. Um, I started talking to Ross Rice and Kai Kennedy, who were old friends, and we'd played together with with a band previously that really showed more promise. And I, I had this dream of putting a band together where we all agreed on the vision and there was no weak player in the band. and. Mm-hmm. We would do our music and do it the way we wanted to. And, of course, the unspoken part is then you get the big record deal and you have money and life is beautiful. And that's the dream we all bought into at some point, I think. So we started trying to do that. We started trying to put that band together. And strangely enough, the first part of that dream just happened. It just worked out. So we had this band. We started playing like a Wednesday night residency at a little bar downtown called The South End. And almost immediately, it was working. And within a year, we were signed with Columbia. Oh, wow. And they took us out to Ocean Way, and we did a record with David Kahn producing and David Leonard, who's now a Nashville producer and engineer. He was co-producing and engineering. I still love that guy and love to work with him. Great drum sounds he gets. But So we were kind of living the dream then. We had... A hit song off that album in 1990 called Me and Elvis, and we got to mm-hmm. tour all over the place. I mean, with the full bus and the full crew, I had a drum tech. Oh. We had a video on MTV, so we got our 15 minutes of fame, but we also kind of got our own Spinal Tap movie to go with it. <laughs> and right around the time we were on that label, Sony bought out all the CBS labels, and it became more about Mariah Carey than some quirky rock band from Memphis. So, you know, the red-headed stepchild syndrome we've all heard so much about. Yeah, yeah. So when it came time to do a second single, it was hard to get support. When it came time to do a second album, we couldn't even agree on producers, let alone material. And we started trying to get off the label. And in that process, we were flirting with some labels. And one thing led to another. Our publishing deal was also with Sony and Sony Tree in Nashville was really good to us and offered us to use downtime in their demo studio and their fire hall as a rehearsal place. So we packed up wives and kids and management and everybody and moved the whole operation to Nashville. Oh, okay. The band, the band. And this started in 91. Ross Rice and I both came up late 91 and found places in Nashville. And then the rest of the guys kind of crept up here in 92. Okay. And we kept the band going. I mean, we we were together over five years, touring and working together, even though the Columbia deal happened early. We did a second album that 
well, I hesitate to call it an album. We did a second big collection of demos that was intended as an album that we produced ourselves. Most of it was recorded in that studio at Sony Tree. Okay. And it just never managed to get put out. Because you're calling this new recording that you guys are working on your second album. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's going to be our second release for sure. The, okay. The stuff that would have been Human Radio 2 that some people like to call it. There was even somebody created a Facebook page called Human Radio 2 that was dedicated to the, oh, cool. the bootlegs yeah, of those demos. And that stuff, we, we may offer some of those as bonus tracks for the Kickstarter Mm-hmm. You know, we just never could get that music put out. Do you think the, the Kickstarter thing is, is I mean, kind of going off on a tangent with, with the music business and how it's changed so much? Um, I've seen a, a lot of established artists. I, I even watched a video recently of uh, Alan Holdsworth, who I'm a huge fan of, mm-hmm. uh, doing a lot of that, uh, getting into some sort of fundraising. Um, I think crowdsourcing is the best way you can go if you've already got a crowd. When you're a brand new thing and you don't have a crowd, I'm not sure how you get over that hump these days. I'd hate to be a kid starting a band right now with that same dream. There's bound to be a way to do it, you know, and if you're willing to go, you know, the extra mile, I'm sure there's a way to do it. Now, the Floating Men were a Nashville band that was kind of a phenomenon, and they were one of the first... They may be the first band that tried the crowdsourcing thing that I'm aware of because they were tied in with Echo Music many, many years ago. And they never had management, never had a record deal. Mm -hmm. But when their first drummer left and moved to China, I believe, and still lives there, we don't know why, (laughs) um, I joined the band and they put out kind of a fundraising campaign to their fans and they were all over the southeast and they raised, I don't know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars just by emailing their fans. Wow! And this is before. What, what year, what, do you remember? Yeah. Oh, at least twelve years ago. Twelve years. Something ago. like that. I mean, this was pre-Facebook for most people, and all that, right? I guess I, I could look back very easily because I know I played on amazing, three or four of their albums, and each time they would do they would do a bigger fundraising campaign. And I think when we did the final album, they had over 40 grand just from the fans. And they patterned it after NPR's fundraising thing. But now everyone does on Kickstarter, right? Like at the $1,000 executive producer level, you get little bar soaps shaped like the heads of the band. Yeah. That's amazing. But yeah, Floating Men were doing this way back. I guess it was kind of a... They they had uh, a smaller... More focused group, uh, I don't know what the word is. Well, their fans were were extremely loyal and extremely enthusiastic. And if we drove to play a gig in Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. we would have people from seven states there. Wow. Outside of Tennessee, people who had driven long distances to come to the show. Yeah. And by the time I was playing with them, you know, they had this kind of weird cult following, which was great for a band like that. But we didn't play that often, so when we did, it was a real special event. That's awesome. And by the end, most of the guys were living in different places, and the bass player had moved to Canada and is now, I believe, in Miami, Florida, and he's a Ph.D. (laughs) genius guy that has a great job, and we just haven't played together now in years, so I think it may be done for good. But Something about that band, all the members are going to other countries. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know what that's about. That's that start with the letter C. Um, but I think Kickstarter is a great thing. I just I've been looking through it lately just to see what everyone else is doing, and I don't know if anybody else will remember, but there was a killer Nashville rock band called Chagall Guevara, and we used to see them at Ace of Clubs back when Human Radio was still around, and they were they were one of our main you know, ally bands out on the same circuit. Yeah. And we loved them, and I hope they loved us. But their lead singer is a guy named Steve Taylor, who's been in more film work for the last decade. He's just launched his new band and done a Kickstarter campaign. And I looked on their page this week. They've raised over $120,000. I'm serious. Oh my Steve gosh. Taylor and the Perfect Foil. And so not only did they do an album, yeah. they've done music videos and they're funding their own tour. And they just played L.A. this week. So they've got their own tour support from crowdsourcing. It's awesome. Wow. That, that is amazing. That is amazing. The landscape is changing and mm-hmm. people are kind of redefining the rules. Someone asked me the other day if this new Human Radio album gets interest from a label, would we go down that pathway again? And I said, absolutely not. I have no intention of working with a record company again. Do you think that that feeling is is unique? Or do you think that other people are kind of on? I with that? I suspect there are a lot of people that feel this way because I think most of us have had our own personal Spinal Tap movie yeah. in our experiences with major labels. Yeah. Well, we have um, Stumpy Joe Peeps on next week, so we'll ask him. You know, mm-hmm. ask him about that. <laughs> um, Man, that's great. I, I th- that really didn't go where I thought it was going to go, and and it's it's it seems like it's ever changing, and, and and crowdsourcing is is taking on many different shapes as far as uh, what people need money for or what they're trying to do with it, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's music or art or other necessary needs or medical treatments or right. things we're all figuring out right now. So. Well, the the internet's such a powerful tool. I would love to have been able to bring facebook and the type of communication we have mm-hmm. back to 1990 when we were trying to launch human radio the first time i'd, I'd love to see how we could have done it differently yeah well how, and what are you guys i know you're doing you're doing the uh the fun the crowdsourcing thing with human radio now what do you do how have how has uh social media these bugs are attacking me how do you personally use it or how much do you use it? I, I do a lot of, I mean, probably some of these guys on that are listening that are my Facebook friends, they know that I spam the heck out of them when I've got a gig because mm-hmm. I'll go on there and invite everyone who's in the Nashville area that I think might even remotely be interested mm-hmm. in one of my local shows because I assume that if they're not interested, they'll just ignore it. And if they might be, well, yeah, my brother-in-law's in town and we need something to do Saturday night. Let's go check out The Long Players or mm-hmm. Guilty Pleasures or 12 Against Nature or one of these bands. So I, I promote the heck out of my bands through Facebook and Twitter. And I don't really promote myself that much because that's not that's not where my money's coming from. You I know, I, I, my teaching practice kind of, I should knock on wood as I say this, it kind of keeps itself alive and has since Forks moved to the big location in 96. But um, as far as human radio, we've, we've got the Facebook page and we've got the Twitter page and we've been trying to just gradually stir up the fan base and see if they're still out there. And we haven't launched the Kickstarter yet. That's coming really soon. I but see. we've already recorded 
a lot of the basic tracks just with our own money. Okay, okay. Well, I, I think that's an interesting point is, is that uh, I see uh, a lot of people promoting themselves personally. Um, there's been a recent conversation uh, that has come up with a, a Nashville group of, of drummers that were asking about, hey, does all this uh, YouTube uh, posting of videos of, of people covering, playing drum covers, and mm-hmm. how does that help? Is this a new trend? And um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe think it's it. It is changing a lot. Um, um, if you don't have the equipment, do you still do it? You know, is, is this quality matter? I mean, there there is performance, but is uh, you know, it's it's just. I always saw drummers in kind of two different categories. This is just maybe my own narrow scope, but I see the working drummer uh, playing uh, in the in the professional world. I see the drummers out there uh, playing live and doing session work and working with groups and other musicians and other artists and playing that supporting role. Then I see the other drummer uh, when I was working in the um, uh, drum stores in different places. I met a lot of drummers who were known as uh, the drummers that did clinics. Yeah, I call them the drum heroes. Right. It's like there's a second industry or something. Right. And and when that question was posed on Facebook not too long ago about uh, this whole kind of group of drummers that aren't working maybe as much uh, out with other musicians but are spending a lot of time posting videos of themselves, right. it seems like another <clears throat> industry or another I, branch of that. And, and, and I think that maybe that could be its own thing in a, in a good way. Sure. You know? I feel like... I don't know that there there is a generational attitude change about self promotion. Yeah, I'm old school enough that it was important to be humble and to not be so shamelessly self promoting mm-hmm. as to appear otherwise. Okay, and so it's always been hard for me to just you know send people emails of me in a video and go check me out. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel right to me, so I've never taken that approach. Right, right. But I know that there are guys that make a lot more money than me that have done a great job of doing exactly that. Well, and you and I have had this conversation before. I struggle with the same thing, that I, I come from that school of thought as well. And and you're kind of getting around that by saying, hey, look, there's this band that I'm working with. There's this other group of musicians. I'm going to promote that. Look, I'm not promoting me. I'm going to be involved. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be playing and supporting this group. But um, Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't profit from it. Right, that's, right. That's as close as I can come to shape, shameless self-promotion right, is right. at least as a group. Yeah. But I'm, I'm constantly struggling with that. It's like, how do you... you it, it, I mean, there's a good community and there's a good support group, but at the same time, you're competition is is they're pushing their own thing and it's mm-hmm. like well it's really not my personality but then i'm like well, geez maybe it should be my personality because this is kind of the you know yeah i'm old school and and i'm older than some of these guys that are promoting this stuff but that's not a good enough excuse the person who's watching and listening mm-hmm. they don't care right they're just they're seeing them they're not seeing right. me if you're if you're doing nothing then you're you're not even in that person's right. radar Right, right. So it's a matter of, and and here's the funny thing: I may not be on that person's radar, but I may be working twice as much as the person that's got their video on YouTube. Mm-hmm. 
So it's like, how do you? That, well, yeah, I I definitely agree with you. And as long as I'm busy and making a good living and can sleep in my bed and see my kid when I want to, yeah, I think it's working. Yeah, you know, I I never really enjoyed the little bit of fame that we got early on with human radio. So I don't think I was cut out to be famous. I don't. I didn't want that because when we had to do certain types of promotional things and make appearances in record stores and do mm-hmm. autograph signings. Believe it or not, at one point, it was kind of crazy. And I wondered, how how did the Beatles do this? Mm-hmm. How did they live through this kind of stuff? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. sometimes that attention is just crazy and it's not nice and it's not welcome. Yeah. And Steve Arnold and I, one of my best friends, who's a great bass player that I've played with forever and in human radio with me, he and I sat down one day mm, 10 years ago and said, you know, it's a good thing we didn't get that dream because our kids are perfectly healthy, normal human <laughs> beings because we're not yeah. famous rock stars. Yeah. And I'm sure somebody out there has raised wonderful kids by being a famous rock star, so no yeah. slight to them. But yeah. I didn't feel like I was cut out for that. I want to make a good living playing music with good musicians, mm-hmm. you know, and have a backyard. I think Nashville is the perfect place for it. Right. Well, and and not to take anything away from kind of what people's uh, desires are and kind of what motivates them, and it's it's all over the map. And I I, I work with musicians that they crave that attention that that's their motivation, and I can't take anything away from that. Mm-hmm. My you know everyone's personality is different, and gosh, up to the the, the number of interviews that I've done, uh, every drummer has a different perspective and, and is motivated. We're all motivated by something similar and other things that are completely different. Like we're fascinated with the drums, we're you know right. we're drawn to that. But uh, music and and the popularity of music and pop culture and fame and all those things, everyone has a different take on that, and is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's another reason. It's kind of another motivation and and to have you on my list of people to talk to because it's like I kind of see where Steve's coming from, and as someone who's raising kids and has a family. Uh, I'm thinking I just I kind of need to pick your brain a little bit mm-hmm. more on how you're doing it. Well, way way back in the day when when we were having our moment of fame, I actually mm-hmm. I didn't get a cover story by any stretch, but I got an interview in Modern Drummer magazine that was part of a bigger article called Drummers of Memphis. Yeah. But they they gave me a nice photo and a a pretty good amount of space for an interview. And around that time, I thought, all right, this is it. I got to launch. I got to do clinics. I got to do this other stuff. I got to release my book. And I started on all of that, and after I had done, gosh, my very first clinic, I had to go on right before Roy Burns Oh wow! at the Memphis Drum Shop yeah. and ended up uh, striking up a friendship with him, which led to a pretty long endorsement with Aquarian. Mm-hmm. But um, I never enjoyed doing the clinics, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't enjoy the life of the traveling cr- clinician, but maybe I'm wrong because I didn't do that. But I've, I've talked to a couple of my friends that got into that world, and I expressed envy that, man, you're really making it. You're in the magazine every month, and mm-hmm. you're doing these clinics, and you've got all this gear for free. And they went, man, I just want to do what you do. I want to stay home and play music with my friends and make great music mm-hmm. and record. And yeah, so yeah. It's, grass is greener, you know? Of course, of course, yeah. We were still trying to tour 
as human radio for 92 and most of 93, but I almost immediately started getting work with other people because I wanted it and was meeting people and asking for it, and and all the other band members were experiencing the same thing. Suddenly, we were making so much more money playing with other people than we could make with our own band. It became just obvious that we needed to stop doing this. We were beating our heads against the wall. We actually thought we had a new record deal once the lawsuit with Columbia was finished, which Jeez. I won't go into the details, wow. but we didn't get any money, put it that way. Um, the lawyers got paid, I think, most of them. But we were going to sign a new deal with Zoo BMG, which was one of the Nashville labels that had a lot of rock acts. They had Matthew Sweet. and Oh, yeah, I love Matthew um, Sweet. I, I'm thinking they had Jason and the Scorchers and... Did they have Webb Wilder then? I don't know. They had a lot of cool acts. It was not yeah. really a country label. Right. And we were poised to sign with them. And right before we had negotiated the finer points, uh, Bertelsmann Group from Germany that owned the whole corporation dissolved the Nashville label. And they were just gone. Uh. And we were kind of left going, uh-oh, now what? Yeah. And this was the time we were all making our living, you know, playing with other people. And So you were already working with other people at mm-hmm. Sunders. Okay. And we're just trying to do this as a stopgap measure to get our band back on the road and get a new record out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then the the last, I think we probably became a bit of a political hot potato after suing our record label to get released. And so there were probably labels that were like, eh, I don't know, I, I like that band, I can't sign them. So it, it's neither here nor there, but we all became freelance players in Nashville. Yeah. And instantly I realized this is, a thought that I've repeated many, many times over the years. The problem with paying your dues is they don't give you a receipt. Mm. So here I was, 30. What do you mean mean exactly? Like, I had already risen to the top of the scene in Memphis, Mm -hmm. and I came to Nashville with a band that had sort of a hit record, and I also had a pretty good discography behind me, Mm -hmm. and it didn't matter. I, I felt like I had to get in the back of the line and start over in Nashville. In Nashville. I played five-hour honky-tonk gigs for 40 bucks and uh-huh. played a little bit on lower broadway not very much right. i i wanted my money guaranteed I, i'm just funny like that yeah i didn't like the tip in a jar thing sure but i did a little bit and um yeah i felt like i had to start over completely so i toured with as many acts as i could just to win some credibility uh-huh. and was just waiting for the moment that i could get back off the road and work in town Especially that time in Nashville, the early 90s, there was a serious separation between the guys that played on the record and the guys that played the concerts. The road guys and the studio guys were not the same guys back then. Right. And I thought, well, in that case, what do we need to do to stay in town and be that recording guy? So er early on, even when you were out there doing, uh, working with other artists, Mm -hmm. uh, you still had your eyes on... Yeah, I always just loved the recording process and Uh, couldn't get enough of that. Sure. And then when I finally started getting a taste of it in Nashville, and and much thanks to Greg Morrow and Chad Cromwell and some of the guys that recommended me Mm -hmm. for things, I realized that a lot of the... i got to be careful not to get too negative here. (laughs) A lot of the music that I was getting asked to record didn't do a thing for me. It was really... It was really a strange moment for me when I realized, wow, this is what I thought I wanted the whole time, 
and some of this I really don't think I want after all. Well, think of your motivation for coming to Nashville and, and, and just you, you were in this band with musicians that you respected sure. and uh, you enjoyed working with. And then, I mean, that just that's, those can be completely two different worlds. Right. And I, I've talked to a lot of musicians over the years about this same phenomenon. I don't think any of us have a problem with certain genres of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we have problems with bad music. Mm-hmm. And I think right. we've all found ourselves in that situation where you're in the studio with a band for no apparent reason because the songs are bad or the singer's bad or both or the person in charge has no idea what they're doing and shouldn't be in that position. We've all been in that situation and it's a spinal tap moment. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't found myself in that spot in a long time, you know, which is great. Right. I, I think that most of the recording stuff that I've gotten now in the last 10 years has been people who wanted me to be me and right. do my thing. And right. some of that was country, some of that was not. But do, don't you think that, that doing the things that you're like, this is, shouldn't be happening in the studio, uh, that that was a bit of paying your dues? That was a bit of coming, Absolutely. You know, the, early on, you had to do that stuff. Yeah, right. I discovered that there were some of these 6 p.m. dates because they thought they could get their free overtime. You know, they just figured, well, he can't, he can't have a session after this, so we'll just talk everybody into staying late. Hap- probably still happening. Probably happening today. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I wonder how technology has changed all that as far as the studio scene. I'm not sure, you know? yeah. Um, what, um, at this point, you're, I know you were having, you had her son, your son was born, and so I wonder how that shifted your attention, maybe well, made you more focused on staying in Right, time. yeah. My, my son Sam was born in 97, September 97, and at the time I was playing with the Dixie Chicks. Mm-hmm. This was right when they hit, right when they became huge. They had come to Nashville. Natalie Maines was the new lead singer because they'd had a previous singer. Right, right. And... Paul Worley and Blake Chansey and the guys at Sony. I've had a lot of experiences with Sony, so here we go again. But this was Nashville Sony, not L.A. Sony. Okay. Um, they had hired a bunch of Nashville players to back them up in showcases, and we actually flew around the country and did, I guess they were considered showcases, or they called them junkets, where it wasn't open to the public and they didn't sell tickets, but they invited all the media, radio and print and press of all kinds. And once we had done a few months' worth of that kind of touring, then they set the girls free to go do their own thing once they had a hit song. And that's when they did auditions and went out in the Winnebago. And okay. they actually invited me to go with them, but I think the money was cut in half or even more so at that point. I see. I see. So I, I actually, they were, they were really sweet to me. And uh, we had a show at the Ryman where my baby son was backstage and they were all holding him and it was really nice. Nice. I, you had talked about that before. I remember you talked about that. And, and, uh, but that was kind of a, a moment. I, I knew you. that I didn't want to be sitting in some... Holiday Inn in an office park in wherever on a day off when I got a text that my baby son took his first steps. Right. You know, and I'm just looking forward to going over across the street to the Red Lobster around six, you know. That, that, well, that, if you ever want to know what that's like, I can. <laughs> that part of the life didn't appeal to me no. at all. Yeah, it's tough. 
It's tough. For so sure. I, I guess nothing specific happened. I just kind of started saying no mm-hmm. to a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and figuring it out. And Web Wilder was a big part of that because I started doing Weekend Warrior rock and roll gigs with Web Wilder. Mm-hmm. And building up my teaching practice more and more because up until 96 which is about right before this happened forks was literally forks drum closet and it was part of corner music and it was just it was a closet. little teeny closet and yeah. there wasn't room for a bunch of teaching studios so in 96 they got the big building next door uh-huh. and that's when uh george lawrence and i both went in as teachers along with harry wilkinson mm-hmm. and so i was building that up and playing with webb and I still, even for years after that moment in 97 when my son was born, I still went out as a sub drummer for people. Mm-hmm. But I found that I really preferred that scenario if I could get it because I could get more money for less work. And I really had the right to pick or choose. Yes, I can do this date. No, I can't do that one. Yeah. Whereas if I took the job with somebody, that power goes away. I see. I see. Um, and then, so when... You started your teaching practice. Did it start small? How did you get it? How did you get the ball rolling? Or was it the fact that it was Fork's drum closet that was there was somewhat built? Well, it was not built in, believe me, because I've seen guys and girls come and go from trying to teach at Forks, yeah. and they'll they'll show up with their two or three students and wait for the rest, and it doesn't come. I tr- I did that. <laughs> I did the same thing when I was there. I tried. I think I had maybe four students at the most, and it never grew from there. I had really never stopped teaching. Um, even when I moved here from Memphis, I would go back there on weekends sometimes when I was free, and I would teach all day Saturday and play a Saturday night gig, and then come back to Nashville. Wow. Just because that's where my connections were still. Uh-huh. But when I got to Nashville and there was no place to teach, I did teach a little bit in my home, but I lived in East Nashville, and some of the population of Nashville was frightened to go across the river mm. in the early 90s. And maybe they still are. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's pretty fine over there, people. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I started doing house calls, yeah. and I don't remember how exactly this got started. I was just doing word of mouth, and so I would go to people's homes in Green Hills or Bell Mead and teach their kid for an hour, or I'd teach the brother for half an hour and then the sister for half an hour. And mm-hmm. by the time Forks had a facility, I probably had a dozen students, mm, Wow! and I brought most of them to the shop with me. And... I would add a little bit here and there, but I would still do some house calls, and I would teach at Forks. And then George Lawrence also had a great practice, and we were in rooms right next to each other. Yeah. And at some point, George got a big tour and went on the road and just gave me all of his students. I wonder if it was the Kinleys. Or it may have been the Kinleys. That uh-huh. sounds about right. Uh-huh. And I don't know exactly what year this was, 98, 99. It could have been anywhere in there between 97 and 99. But suddenly my teaching load doubled Oh wow! because of the kindness of George Lawrence when Mm -hmm. he left town. And we had sub-taught for each other a little bit previous to that. Mm -hmm. But so from then on, it's been kind of a, if if I'm available, it's like a a five-day-a-week thing. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think as long as I've been in town, you've always had a full plate of students and been able to make that work. Is there a... um, uh, an approach to teaching that you take is there like a philosophy uh, with it that 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 is consistent across the board whether it's beginners um, seasoned player you know just the, the whole range of 
of students. I try not to have style yeah, teaching style approach. No, I'm, I don't have a real agenda about what kind of drummer I'm going to turn them into. But if someone comes to me and says, "I don't want to read music. I just want to play by ear." Yeah, I think to myself, "I'm going to change your mind." Okay. Yeah. And I'll let them play by ear uh-huh. for the first few weeks. Yeah. And then I'll start letting them realize the parts they can't remember or the parts they can't figure out because they don't understand that rhythm. It's not in their vocabulary. Yeah. And then I say, well, here's why you can't figure that out. You don't understand that rhythm. It's not in your vocabulary. Now, if you want, we can start teaching you more vocabulary. Yeah. But you're going to you're gonna have to look at some stuff on paper. Sure, sure. Because I, I don't think that it's about sight-reading notation as much as it's being fluent in your language. Right. Sometimes you need to sight-read a rhythm. Sometimes you need to just hear the saxophone player playing that rhythm and react instantly because you recognize it. Right. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't let anybody stay with me long-term without learning their language. Okay. But I try to get them equipped, even the little kids. Like, I've got seven-year-olds who could play... Knock on Wood by Eddie Floyd and mm-hmm. Free Fallen by Tom Petty. And, you know, if their cousin gets married and there's a band, yeah, even my seven-year-old students could probably sit in with that wedding band and know some of the same songs they need to know. Nice. So that's something I do. Yeah. And, but I have, I have pros. I have guys that everybody on this podcast would know that have come in just because they're having trouble with something. Yeah. Either it's a posture thing or a you know, pain in the low back or something. Yeah. That, believe me, I've been through all of it. Yeah. And um, it's been really great working with guys that have these tremendous careers, but yet still want to expand their drumming. Right, right, right. It's a practice. It's, you know, it's like, I don't know, I say this a thousand times where, you know, someone's practicing medicine and you're your favorite doctor or your favorite physician there. So, well, you know, we're constantly learning and we're growing and, I don't see why music isn't any different. It's like right. you read the latest article by Pat Metheny, and he's going on and on about things that he's learning and he's growing. You're like, what? Mm-hmm. Pat Metheny? <laughs> yeah, I, I have little breakthroughs every year or two yeah. about new ways to just communicate. Because it's, it's one thing to tell somebody, here's what you got to do with your hand to get this result. Mm-hmm. But the art of teaching is how do you get them to hear you? How do you really get them to listen to that and understand that so they can put it into practice? Because that's a whole different skill. Not everybody learns the same way. Have you ever had, um, this is coming from a personal point, have you ever had uh, an experienced player that has had a setback and maybe is feeling like, like, hey man, I used to be able to do this and because of the type of work that I'm doing or the style of music that I'm playing, that has kind of gone away. It hasn't mm-hmm. been in my wheelhouse anymore, and I want to get it back. Whether it's uh, you know a style of playing or a chop or sure. you know, something like. Believe it or not, the most common complaint that brings a semi-pro or pro drummer to me is somebody has shattered their confidence. Uh, interesting. They've gotten beaten down by that. Uh artist or band leader or producer Uh someone has you know belittled and just put them shoved them to the bottom of that pecking order and abused them a little bit and they've gotten their confidence cracked you know yeah and sometimes we'll just sit there and the whole drum lesson consists of talking almost like psychotherapy for drummers yeah and i talk about the artists that beat me down 
and how, you know, I would call up Greg or Chad and go, man, I need to take a lesson from you guys because my timing's terrible. And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Your timing's not terrible. What happened? You know? Yeah, yeah. And I would say, well, I got fired because I was trying to play the tempo of the record and they kept telling me to speed up and I wouldn't do it. And they're like, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, was, is there something specific that you share on a consistent basis? Say, you know, I came to you and say, I have this similar story. It's like, man, I... Yeah, my, my, that, I mean, it, I'm making a joke, but my very first real road gig on a bus was 1984. My very first country gig as well with an artist named Charlie McLean who was on Epic, and she was based out of Memphis. And mm-hmm. I was just playing in bar bands. I was still going to Memphis State. I wasn't even out of college yet, and I got offered this road gig, and I thought, wow, a bus... And the money wasn't even that great, but I mean, I guess it's probably equal to what some guys are going out for now. That's a shame, but Mm -hmm. um, I got a brief endorsement deal and some things like that. So it it had its allure, but when I got out there, I was probably half the age of most of the people on the band. And I found out very quickly that some of these folks, including the artist, were not the nicest folks I'd ever met. And depending on whether she was tired or... Or nervous, the -hmm. tempos were always wrong, and it was always my fault. Mm -hmm. And so I called some friends, um, among them Greg Morrow, Chad Cromwell, Steve Mergen, another fantastic Memphis drummer who I looked Mm -hmm. up to as a mentor. And they said, well, there's a thing called a Dr. Beat. Mm -hmm. And really, what's that? Back then it had the big dial, because this would have been 84. And they said, well, get the Dr. Beat, and the next time you have rehearsals, get her to pick the tempo for each tune even if it's a little faster than the record and you write that tempo down and you reassure her that you're going to start that song at that tempo every night i mean i know everybody listening is already doing this and this has been like what everyone does pretty much for the last 20 years but this was new yeah this this was not happening people weren't playing with click tracks except in the studio we did it in the studio already but not on gigs yeah and so i bought the dr beat we called a special rehearsal for me, the young drummer, which now I know was already a mistake, right? I'm costing them money. I'm being trouble. Yeah. So I, I didn't know that then. I thought I was being proactive. Yeah. And so we had a rehearsal and no one wanted to be there. Yeah. So yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, that tempo's fine. No problem. So we flippantly, we being loose term, chose these tempos. Then we headed out that night to the next gig where there were going to be label representatives Mm -hmm. so the artist is nervous some of the band is nervous suddenly those perfect tempos that we chose last night are not quite so perfect and i stubbornly held my ground yeah so i got fired for the first time ever in my life but yeah right and still part of me knew that standing my ground was the right thing because i won't go into all the details but i was getting bullied on many fronts in this musical situation and no one wants to be there if that's if i've got no respect and i'm not going to be treated well on the other hand i should have been slightly more flexible well right and and uh, it's hard well at a certain age to Mm -hmm. see that and i'm i'm 20 maybe at that point well and and you're thinking from a drummer standpoint, the drummer brain is going, no, 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 this is this is the way it should be done. Right. And, man, I have a story like that. I, I know I do. And I'm like, this is, uh, I think uh, Keo Stroud and I were talking about this. And you're like, no, no, this is where it is and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The, the artist, the person that's signing your check. 
Mm-hmm. It's whatever tempo. Uh, you and I have worked with somebody, uh, the same person, yeah. that uh, you know the tempo was one thing at rehearsal, and then <clears throat> the gig is live, and he'll turn around to me and he'll say, we're going to start at one tempo, and I'm going to go faster, and I want you to go with me. Mm-hmm. And my brain is going, no, I can't <coughs> do that. Well, and it, we, have to, we have to choose how much time we want to spend in those musical situations once right, we know that right. no amount of debate is going to change it. Well, my philosophy is as soon as I say yes to the gig, I'm committed now right. to that performance, to that uh, that run of shows. Um, so I'm not going to be a dick about it. But right. at the same time, if I know that that's the situation long term, you're exactly right. You yeah. have to make that choice. Yeah. Like if this is not working for me, then it's but time to move. Nobody wants to have arguments on stage, musical or no, verbal. No, no, no. And just to qualify, one of the reasons I was stubborn at that point, I already knew I was going to get fired one way or the other. <laughs> because it it had gone so horribly wrong at this moment. And this was an artist who would introduce the band mid-show and turn to me and look at me with this blank look, obviously had no idea who I am, and would just make up a name. Wouldn't even say, I'm sorry, what's your name off the mic? Would just make up a name. It was it was that lack of respect that was sort of eating away at the rebellious teenager in me. Glorious. And and so it was it was a moment of rebellion. And of course, once I was fired and taken home, and just to add a little salt to the wound, the brand new Doctor Beat that caused the problem, I forgot it on her bus and never got it back. <laughs> and they probably thought you left it there and say here as a symbol. You need this. <laughs> you need it more than I do. Uh, so, yeah, it was a great learning experience because I promptly went home and got a little depressed. Like, oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Everyone I had worked with up to that point thought I was great, so I thought anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'd never been fired or even threatened with it mm-hmm. before. And so I thought, oh, man, you know, maybe I don't have what it takes for this business. Mm-hmm. And so I went through this soul-searching moment. And, again, I'm 20 or 21 years old. Mm-hmm. And so I called all the good drummers I knew yeah. in Memphis yeah. and said, I want to take a lesson. I know you don't teach, but please let me pay you for a lesson. I want to mm-hmm. figure out my timing problem. And they all refused. None of them would give me a lesson. They wow. said, you don't need a drum lesson. Huh? You need to learn how to deal with belligerent artists and people right. that try to bully you. you got to learn to stand up for yourself a little better. Wow. And and uh, does that ever come up in your teaching practice? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's where this whole conversation Obviously. started. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've told. I, I'm sorry, Steve. I haven't been listening <laughs> to a word you've been saying. I've told people this story and other stories, and and I've tried to come up with more tactful solutions for how to talk to the band members about this. So obviously, we know anytime you come in as the 20 year old drummer, and the rest of the band is in their 40s you're not going to sway anybody's opinion. You're not going to persuade anyone of anything because you're the punk kid and that's just the way it is. You are at the bottom of the food chain and you're going to stay there for a while. And if it's a bad musical situation, your only option is to stay or go. Mm -hmm. But if you've been in a situation enough times to kind of know that it's your job and people trust your opinion or respect you on some level, Mm -hmm. the conversation that I've had with a number of folks is, listen, my job for my whole life has depended on my ability to choose and hold correct tempos. Yes. Please let me do that job for you. Yeah. And if you are on stage and you're feeling antsy or nervous and the song seems too slow, 
please just assume that you're wrong yeah. and play with the drums. Yeah. And then if we listen to the board tape or look at the video, we can take the metronome out and we can check the tempo. Mm-hmm. And if I'm playing that song at the wrong tempo, I'll buy you dinner anywhere you want to go. Mm-hmm. Let me be responsible for that. And that, in the right setting, that conversation can put everyone at ease. I mean, granted, you've still got to agree what is the tempo we want to do songs. Yeah. But there are plenty of other situations, such as Webb Wilder. Mm-hmm. Webb requested specifically that I not use any kind of a click for a song starter or otherwise. He liked the song starting at random tempos and taking on different feels based on that. Well, and that's what I was going to interject before when you said, I know everyone's using click tracks and blah, 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 but there are <coughs> situations and there are artists and there are gigs. I mean, I think in certain, uh, lots of pop music and lots of pop styles, whether it's country or whatever, they're using clicks, but there are lots of situations where they're not. Right. Um, and but that's this being an example of that. I thoroughly enjoyed that because it was one less thing to worry about. Yes. And we didn't, it wasn't, I mean, it was a seasoned band. These are good players. Once we got started, we didn't rush or drag. We were just starting at different tempos because we were plucking those tempos out of the air. And he started a lot of the songs on the guitar. Right. And so we just went with it and it was right. great. But right. I think a lot of drummers probably are using clicks initially as a way to not get fired. So they can't get blamed for something. But then you get in those situations where there's a fight, and it's sometimes hard to say whose fault it is. Well, and I use a beat bug uh, a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the band that I'm working with now is... is, is one of those bands where they kind of leave it all up to me yeah. and have given me a lot of trust. And so I'm using click on some stuff mm-hmm. and stuff that I don't, I'm referring to the beat bug yeah. um, for that. And I tell you, there are some nights that I'm like, man, this feels, and I see it and we're one or two clicks a little bit faster. But sometimes the tempos in certain songs that we do or we're, we're throwing, doing medleys of things, right. it's going from one tempo to another. So for me, that's where the beat bug really comes into play. Um, to kind of help me make those transitions. I've never tried the beat bug. I, I, now I'm using the iPhone on a little K&M clamp that's like just under my hi-hat so my left-hand pinky finger can mm-hmm. turn it on and off and change mm-hmm. tempos very easily. Yeah. And the beauty of the Yamaha metronome app is the same button, which is a very large red button, that you use to tap and get a tempo. Yes. If you're playing to the click and you get ahead of it or behind it, all you have to do is tap that button on a downbeat, the click will correct to you. And the old click station used to do that, which is why I loved those things, and I finally went through two of them, and I couldn't afford another one. But so the Yamaha app has that built in as well. So I used that thing, like with 12 Against Nature, the Steely Dan tribute band, Mm -hmm. some of those songs need to be played with a click. And thankfully, it's such a good band, no one ever fights on that. They and you're the only one that has the click. <coughs> right. They glue. Well, we do have a couple of things where there's a little sequence with some percussion or some extra keyboards. Mm-hmm. And um, in that case, everyone on stage who is on in-ears does have the click. But most of the time, I, I'm the only one that has my click. Okay. And we have a few things where we go from one song to another, mm-hmm. and there's a slight tempo shift. So eight bars before the end... If the click is running, I'll shut it off, mm-hmm. dial it up to the next tempo, mm-hmm. kick into the next song, and somewhere in the first bar or two, I'll restart the click at the new tempo. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And usually I can guess yeah. where I'm going and get yeah. there. Yeah. But if not, you know, the thing that I've learned from years of playing with clicks is never make a correction that's not super gentle. Right. Just right. ease your way up to it. So I don't listen to my clicks very loudly, live or in the studio. Okay. Because okay. I like to be able to toy with it. Right. Sometimes toward the end of that second verse, around bar five, I'll just start laying back, just flamming behind the click ever so slightly so I'm enabled to rush slightly. No, I'm, what am I saying? I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I like the sound of a fill that slightly rushes. Sometimes right. the band needs that to yeah. feel like the chorus arrived. Yeah. I, I've, I've had that conversation with you. I remember you telling me that years years ago. I was the, struggling with rushing fills and, uh, and, and then coming out of the fills, doing a especially in the studio, and mm -hmm. then uh, trying to lay back, and then it started to sound dragged. The worst sound ever is when you're locked to that click, and you reach bar 16, and you play that huge, awesome fill, and the downbeat of one lands, you know, a 64th note early. Yes. And then you wait for count two to be right back on the click. It just sounds like death. It, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what I was dealing with. It's death of yeah. a groove. Yeah, no. Yeah, it didn't work. And so... That was your explanation? Yeah. And it, it happens to all of us. If, so explain to me again how this... Well... Or, or tell me again what... You can set it up by dragging before you rush mm -hmm. so that you... When you do rush, yeah. you land on one, the real one. Right. Because you were, you were late before the fill began. So the question is: Is this uh, is this a conscious choice? You know, because you were Some, saying you like the feel. I mean, I'm sure it all depends on the song, the yeah. groove, the tempo, and all that stuff. And I've had a, I've had a lot of really good experience getting to play with this with groups that used clicks all the time. So that that was a great training ground to just play around with it and see when I'm the only one that hears it, and no one else knows. I can try these things and go, "Wow, that felt great," and then listen to the board tape to be sure I'm right. Yeah. But if you have one of those moments that happens where you didn't plan it, and yes, we hit one early because we all got into a rhythm in the fill. Maybe it was a thing coming off the guitar solo. Everybody's ahead. Mm -hmm. One lands ahead. Just stay ahead. Mm -hmm. Wait a couple of bars mm -hmm. and just start leaning back. Right. And by bar four or five, maybe you're back on the click. But it's yeah. that gentle correction that keeps it from jarring the, bar, the boat, so to right. speak. Right. If you make that instant correction, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's obvious. It's if like you make you, that slight correction, it, it, it almost might. It's going to work in your favor. It's going to mm -hmm. maybe give it more of a that that feel that. Because it's generally, yeah. You know, I mean, some of our best recordings of the last fifty years rush like mad in places. Honky Tonk Woman. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and some of it's perfectly forgivable. Listen to how much Steve Gadd speeds up on Asia, the title track uh, of the Steely Dan album. Yeah. That's perfectly forgivable rushing. Yeah. If he had played that, I think that song starts around 115. If he had played that whole track at 115, it wouldn't have been what it is. 
and it's funny uh, 12 against nature is you have uh, a video of you playing that out and that solo and i remember seeing that and, and writing on your <coughs> the comment in there saying i need to get a lesson from you that's that's my way of satisfying my brain that yeah i, I just asked steve for a lesson Am I going to do it? I don't know if I have time, but at least I said it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it. It doesn't mean (laughs) that it's really helping me whatsoever. When Human Radio was having our heyday in the early 90s, and and we were touring heavily and getting in magazines, and we were on MTV somewhat regularly, I, I managed to lock down endorsements with Vader Sticks, Zildjian Cymbals, Aquarian Heads, and DW Drums. Mm -hmm. And I still have all of those except for the Aquarian Heads. And I I didn't really quit Aquarian or Mm -hmm. go find a new endorsement with another head company. Mm -hmm. I just kind of drifted away as I was playing in Nashville and trying different things. I kind of fell out of love with those heads Mm -hmm. and started buying Remos at Forks. And that's what I've done now for nearly a decade or so. And I've gone back and tried some of the other brands, but it just the Remos sound right to me, particularly on snares. Yeah, I can't get next to anything else, and that's just my old school ears, I guess. But Vader has been fantastic. Um, there's a kind of a funny story involved in that because I used to use Vic Firth 5Bs, wood tips, mm-hmm. and that was my go-to stick all through the 80s, and I was a little bit like ridiculously superstitious about having exactly that stick and nothing else. One day I showed up to buy some at the Memphis drum shop and they had changed quite a bit. The The shoulder had gotten thin and the tip was different and the weight was funny. And I went, oh my God, what has happened to my sticks? And Robert Hall <laughs> yeah. was the man I'm talking to. Okay. And he was like, yeah, man. You know, they used to, they used to use this company up in Massachusetts to make the sticks. But uh, they've gone to like some overseas supplier, maybe China or Taiwan or something. I went... Well, who, who's this Massachusetts company? I, I, I need to call them if they make those sticks. And he said, well, there's a guy named Alan Vader. I can probably get you his number. Mm-hmm. And this would have been 1988 or something. Uh-huh. And there was no Vader brand. They made drum shop sticks, and they made, yep. they made Vic Firth, and they made Fibes sticks, yep. and some of the other brands up to that point. And so I started calling Ron, uh, Alan Vader. His brother is Ron. I've spoken to Ron some also, but Alan was the main one. I started pestering him and telling him how vital to my thing these sticks were and that I would pay him any amount of money to get these sticks. And he'd kind of chuckle and say, well, we don't have any plans to do that at this time. But sometime in the next year, a box of sticks showed up, and they're completely blank. There's no writing on them of any kind, but they were those exact sticks. Oh, wow. And it was from Alan Vader to me. And I called him and said, this is it. This is exactly it. Thank you so much. What do I owe you? And he goes, eh, don't worry about it. Just let me know how you like them. And, oh, that's and cool. we started this long relationship oh, way awesome. back then. So now I'm using their 55AA, which I think is an excellent okay. stick. I, I used the Sessions for many years. And mm-hmm. now I've just switched because it feels like a 5A with an acorn tip, but it's just a little longer. Okay. But it doesn't lose rebound. Yeah. Um, the Zildjian thing's been great. There's there's been some as as you know, there's been a lot of rebudgeting and reconfiguring and um you know, I, I'm waiting for any day now they're just gonna say, Yeah, we don't really have room for you because you're not high profile enough anymore and I'm gonna understand if that day comes. 
But I know that, you know, through my teaching, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are asking me direct advice about what to buy. Interesting. And I think I'm in a unique position there. Like, how many people go see a country concert and go home and buy a Zildjian cymbal because the guy played Zildjians, yet it's the live players that get the endorsements more easily. Exactly. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, The DW thing's been fantastic. I've got a new kit on the way, in fact. I ordered a... Uh, 23-inch kick drum? I'm getting a 23. Are you serious? I'm serious. Oh, man. I am getting a 23 with 12, uh, 12, 14, 16, and I'm getting the cherry gum shells. There's a kit up at Sweetwater in the studio that I've played a number of times, and I just love the sound of that kit, so I had to get one. Uh, Are they selling 23 kick heads now? Uh, Yep. Remo and Evans both make them. And uh, b- before I made this decision, believe me, I, I went through the whole, oh, that's never going to work, like like the Tama 11-inch Tom. Oh, I have a 15 yeah. uh, floor Tom <coughs> on one well, of my Gretches. So I, I talked to Gary Forkham, you know, very sincerely at Forks, like, man, if I do this, are there really going to be heads? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I think so. That's awesome. Um, I want to ask you about the bands that you're working with now and just give me a, a rundown of kind of who they are, what they do, because uh, it's it's you have a, a, a niche in this town, and the bands, uh, anyone that lives in town knows these bands, and they have a reputation, and they're more than they're not a cover band. It's it's they are, you guys are covering things, but it's it just doesn't seem like the right word right. to use. Cover bands with a shtick. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I'm lucky enough that I've got three. Well, I've got more than three, but I've got my main three groups that have been successful in Nashville and all three of them are well over 10 years old now. Nah, that's an I, I Before this point in my life, I'd never been in a band that long. <laughs> but the Long Players were formed early 2004. There had been some uh, John Lennon tribute concerts that occurred every December on the anniversary of his death and the house band for those gigs for prior years had loosely been Bill Lloyd, Steve Allen, Gary Talent, John Dedrick, and myself. Mm-hmm. And one year we started talking, man, I wish, you know, this is such a good band. I love working with you guys. I wish we could do this more than once a year. Yeah. And Bill Lloyd thought of the concept of the long players, like an LP long player album, where we would perform classic albums as concerts. Mm-hmm. And we would select a different charity for each new album, and we would give a percentage of the take to a charity. And at this point, um, so that band was born in 2004, and we started doing albums. Our first one was Let It Bleed by the Stones, and we started at 12th and Porter. And now we've done somewhere in excess of 70 albums. What? Yeah. 70? And we've repeated, we've repeated a number of them. We've, oh, I knew you've repeated We've done I way more understand. gigs than that, but we've oh, done over so... 70 albums. I actually, before this interview, I went to the website and counted up so I could tell you. Holy moly. Yeah. That's amazing. And we, um, we are the basic band, but we always bring in celebrity guest lead singers. Yeah. So usually if you come to a long player show, every song will be sung by a different person. Yeah. And so we'll do that whole album in order, mm-hmm. and then we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back and do a long second set of other important songs by the same artist. Okay. So it's a, it's a night of celebrating a certain band or artist yeah. that starts off with a performance of a specific album. 
And you're record and you're performing the studio tracks the way they were performed on this almost almost note for note at times like we get really close we we really strive to recreate the record if there are moments that allow because we realize that that does dehumanize things in certain aspects so if there's a good opportunity to stretch a guitar solo or to jam on the outro of something we'll seize that opportunity and make it an exciting live show yeah so if the record faded out at four minutes, we might make it a five-minute song just to have some fun. But we'll hire... Um, I often have Paul Snyder play percussion with me. He handles all the tambourines and the... You know, if there's tabla drums or something, he'll come play that on the Hansonic, and he really helps me cover some of the little parts that I don't have an extra hand for. We'll hire horns. We'll hire backup singers. So we'll do supplement the band. We'll get an extra keyboard player if we need to... But it's been a great ride because I've gotten to work with some fantastic artists. We just had John Hyatt come perform with us, and a few months before that, Steve Earle was on the show with us. And uh, more than once, we've had Adrian Ballou, oh, Reeves Gabrels, Brendan Benson of the Raconteurs, and, and his, of course, own solo career is fantastic. Um, Al Cooper... Wow. Came and played with us when we did Bob Dylan. He's He's been with us at least twice. And at one point, I remember early on, we were still at 12th and Porter. Since then, we play mostly Mercy Lounge and 3rd and Lindsley. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. At one point, uh, of course, Gary Talent was our bass player, and he's been Springsteen's guy from yeah. the beginning, and he's fantastic. Now, often, he's unavailable because of that other gig. <laughs> but Brad Jones also fills in admirably on bass and vocals. Okay. one point at 12th and Porter, about the third or fourth gig we did, I look up and I see Gary Talent is right here by my hi-hat, grooving with me. Straight in front of me is Adrian Ballou. And off to the left is Al Cooper playing a Hammond B3. And I thought, this is a cool cover band. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's why that that, that term doesn't necessarily, it's not the most apt, for sure. Um, Yeah, at first we were just having a good time and... um, after a while, it, it it became a popular thing, and so it's getting, as you can imagine, after 70 albums, it's getting more and more difficult to choose the next album, because if 50 people show up in a 600-seat room, it doesn't look right. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we're getting more and more you know picky about how we choose the next album we're about to do a repeat we're going to do dark side of the moon oh yeah on may 2nd i missed that how you've done that once before we've done it twice before the first time we did it at mercy lounge yes we had no idea but it sold out and it sold out in such a way that we had hundreds of people angry (laughs) because up to that point people thought they could just show up and buy a ticket at the door and we had no idea that a thousand people would show up for a 500 seat club. Is this when we get the messages from you say, hey, does anybody have some rototoms? Exactly. In <laughs> fact, um, I just found a set. I okay. found a whole set and uh, it's going to be awesome because that's the hardest part of the album is that little rototom solo on it's amazing. time. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, kind of related to what you were saying about Webb Wilder not wanting to use a click and, and saying that it took the responsibility off and it was nice that luxury not having that relating to what you're talking about now you had a show in Copper Mountain Colorado that I've mm-hmm. played with with my band as, as well and had a chance to play was it Rubber Soul you guys were playing I think that's right and Paul wasn't with you and so you asked if I could play percussion right. yeah and not only is that such a great record um 
the funnest thing about playing uh, percussion with you guys was that you started the songs, you ended the songs. That responsibility that you we carry around with us as far as tempo and all that stuff. I was having so much fun, but I'm like, wow, I don't have to be the drummer. I'm not sitting in that chair. And it mm-hmm. kind of like put a real strong emphasis on that burden that you carry until it's lifted. You don't realize sure. that. Sure, yeah. It's, and, a, it's uh, a heavy job depending on right. what the situation is. I had to just kind of relax and look over and you would start. This, if, 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 if tambourine was started at the top, I just had to wait for you to count in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was like, man, that's, I didn't realize how much I'm used to starting and stopping songs and holding tempos and knowing all that stuff i just had you know yeah it's not taking anything away from was what it, anyone else is doing. i believe that was a great show that rubber soul concert i think john Waite. yeah john Waite from the babies and bad english and his yes. solo career he, he sang there. with us sang. and wasn't felix cavallari yes felix of the cavallari. rascals um, and then uh, uh don gatlin the right yeah yeah savannah jack and exactly stuff inside and out and we still do a lot of, and we did a we did a um, Paul McCartney tribute uh, at Third um, Lindsley a couple years ago, but that was different for us. Um, we did some stuff like the record, but we also did stuff like uh, his newer band. So mm-hmm. I was kind of copying a lot of Abe Laborelle's or attempting to try and sound more like him because of the energy that sure. his new band brings. So that was different. That's why I was asking you, like, how do you approach that? Yeah. Um, well, and back to our click track discussion with mm-hmm. the long players, we do a lot of albums from way back when there weren't clicks on those mm-hmm, albums. Mm-hmm. And I've really gotten such oh, a... How do you deal with I that? love to refer to that group as my grad school of rock because I've gotten so deep inside some of those albums and I've gotten so nerdy as to sit with my metronome <laughs> and like not only clock the starting tempo, but as each tempo change occurs, I, I have notated that just to kind of see where it goes, just, just for my own education. And... By and large, Stone's records rush like mad, and Beatles' records actually slow down. But sometimes I know that was probably editing, where a slower take got stuck in as the second verse. But So when we perform these songs live, I'm not going to play that to a click and make it straighten out all the way through. It's not going to feel right. So I try to do that sort of research just so that I kind of know when to rush on purpose. Mm-hmm. And... I've found that after many years of being told to never do that, it's hard. Yes. It's profoundly difficult. Oh, I, know it. I know it. If a tempo rushes by 6 BPM during a guitar solo, I'll think I'm pushing like mad. I'll even inform the band at rehearsal, we're going to rush. Please help me rush. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll check it, and we sped up by 2 Oh, isn't that and I weird? thought we sped up by so much, oh, but it was it was two or three clicks, and I was going for six. I, I wanted to show you an app here that uh, Lee Kelly told me about, and it monitors your tempo. It's that live BPM. Is I that... just bought it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, People my... been talking about it. I, I just I was going to show you, <coughs> but you know about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh... And that's going to come in really handy if it'll work for those situations where I'm I'm trying to attain a certain tempo. By rushing or dragging? I think it... Now, I haven't used it live the way <coughs> Lee uses it, but I use it a lot uh, when I'm hearing songs and I just want to check the tempos. I hold it up to the speaker and it gives it to me and I've double-checked mm-hmm. its accuracy and it's 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 really great. Yeah, it seemed... John Dedrick showed it to me in the studio one day and it, it seemed to be really good, so I bought it immediately. Um, I just have to remember, like, when I need to switch over from the Yamaha app to the 
live BPM for need more phones. I would just went to check my phone and and the sun actually is causing it to overheat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually cooling down. It's kind of weird. Um, so uh, tell me about um, the other bands. Uh, well, Twelve there's Against a, Nature. Yeah, the the other one that's been going even longer than the Long Players is Guilty Pleasures. Oh yeah, yeah. And this band, I was not the original drummer. They formed over at the Slow Bar, mm-hmm. which. You know, for those that don't know, Slow Bar was the catalyst that made Five Points and East Nashville as a whole happen as a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And Mike Grimes was very much, you know, in charge of all that. One night, the way I heard the myth or the story or the legend was that they had a Saturday night band that canceled. They were broken down on the road. And so Mike Grimes called up Will Kimbrough and John Dedrick and a couple of friends and said, listen, are you guys in town? Can you just come down and jam with me tonight? We've got to have something. We've got a full house and there's no band. And so they came down and they just jammed on like cheesy 80s songs to make it kind of a joke, tongue in cheek. And they would get people from the audience to jump up and sing. So it always had this kind of karaoke, amateur meets pro kind of situation, but people loved it and became this phenomenon. And by popular demand, they started doing it and they could pack the place on a Friday and a Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then after that went on for maybe a year and a half, I got a call um, from John Dedrick and he and I were playing together with the long players at this point. Mm -hmm. And he asked if I'd be interested in joining Guilty Pleasure. I don't know what went down there, but I said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's try it out and see how it works. And so our very first gig was New Year's Eve at the (sighs) Exit Inn. And it's all over the map. It's mostly 80s, yeah. some 70s, but we'll jump from a Van Halen song to a Madonna song into Prince, back into Devo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before the night's over, we'll do Salt and Pepper. we'll do Wilson Phillips. <laughs> we might do, oh gosh, what am I missing here? Rick James or um, Motley Crue. Yeah. I mean, there's hair metal, there's total cheesed out bubblegum pop. Yeah. And again, this band, it's a set rhythm section. And now there's kind of a regular cast of singers, but we also get guest singers. So every song's a different lead singer. And so we'll sometimes have 20 or more people on stage. Wow. And sometimes there's horns. And so it, all these bands are big bands. That yeah. seems to be what works for me right. in Nashville. Sure, sure. But it makes us capable of doing anything and doing it well. That's awesome. It seems like a party. It's there's always stuff. It's going a wild on. party, and uh, we always do a crazy Halloween gig with crazy costumes, and that's fun. Um, that that's been a real money maker too. That's been a whole lot of fun, and occasionally we'll get to fly somewhere exotic and do a great corporate gig. I believe in June we're going down to Cabo San Lucas, and the other headliner on the bill is Sammy Hagar. <laughs> I don't know how they got our name, but I'm I'm happy to go. It's some fundraiser golf sure. tournament thing in Cabo. Nice, nice. Then the third band that's been really significant started around the same time as the Long Players in 2004 is called 12 Against Nature, and it's a Steely Dan tribute. Um, Scott Sheriff is the leader and arranger of that. Mm-hmm. But previous to it, we had played together in a band called Delicious, which was mostly a 70s funk party band. Mm-hmm. Scott Sheriff was our new keyboard player, and one day in rehearsal, maybe it was soundcheck, he played Home at Last by Steely Dan. Mm. Yeah. And Steve Arnold was on bass and Kai Kennedy was on guitar and we all knew that song. Yeah. So we just fell in and played a pretty good rendition of it, in my opinion. And we said, man, I wonder if we formed a Steely Dan tribute band, I think the musicians in this town would probably 
pay 10 bucks each just to see if we're going to screw it up. And so here, you know, 11 years later, it's, it's been working. And it started out being called the Royal Scam, which I thought was a superior band name. But there was a very proud Royal Scam somewhere in New Jersey okay. that sent us a cease and desist letter. And uh. I had all kinds of ideas for what we should say to them. But Scott agreed to change the name. <laughs> so now it's called 12 Against Nature because there are 12 guys in the band usually. And they had an album called Two Against Nature. And right, right. So what are you going to do? Right. I do like Royal Scam. I do like that. That was a much better band name. I like that. And they're, they're uh, um I wanted to say to those guys, listen, we're going to play in Nashville, Tennessee. You can have the rest of the planet. How about that? We'll be Royal Scam Nashville. But you never know where it could go, man. Yeah. So, yeah, we actually just did a bus gig and went down and played Hard Rock Casino in Biloxi last Friday. With uh, uh, Mason, 12 Against Nature. Mason Embry. Yeah, exactly. Mason came along. He's played with us a number of times. Yeah, he is. Uh, I had a chance to work with him, and uh, I knew he was a huge uh, Steely Dan fan, and he posted that he was going. I was like, man, good for you. You probably didn't have to do any homework. You probably just walked in. Incredible player, man. Great keyboard player. Well, and that band gets real picky. Like, Oh, you know what? It gets I, real picky with the records. Four years ago, you had me come in and <clears> sub <throat> On a sound sound check, check right? Where maybe I was working and couldn't make yeah, sound check. Yeah, and they needed they needed somebody just to play drums so they could get stuff together. At Third and Lindsley, so they weren't picky about what I was doing. You hand me your charts, and I like, you know, I, I went over the songs as best I could just so uh, they could do their job. But mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of very specific uh, attention to detail that I had never seen before that the leader was going through right. with guitar solos and specific notes and specific bends, and I thought, wow, these people are serious. At, at serious. some points, that band will also take liberties. There are solos that are stretched out, and there are outros that are stretched out, and sometimes segues from one song to another where we can do our own thing yeah. because that moment didn't exist on the record. Yeah. And sometimes we borrow from certain live Steely Dan performances yeah. also. Okay. But, but by and large... I think this band probably plays it more like the record than the real Steely Dan does because they they really right, get yeah 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 different arrangements going every tour. Well, man, seriously, your version uh, playing the outro to Asia was was great. Oh, I appreciate it was really, that. Really fun to, to I, see. When we first did that song, of course, I spent days charting it out yeah. and just really dissecting what Gad played. And I've been a Gad fan since high school, so I already feel like I understand a lot of his vocabulary pretty well. But that was a pretty magic moment for him, regardless of whether it's true that it was a first or second take or anything else about that legend. It's still a stunning piece of work. And so I spent days writing that thing out, and it took two full manuscript pages to get it written down. And then I, of course, can't read all that chicken scratch on a gig, so I had to set about learning it. And so I set the goal for myself that I wanted to play the whole thing note for note like him at least once or twice and then I was going to kind of start just doing my own improvisation oh. on the solo sections. Yeah. And so now some nights, like, I know his solo so well, just because I know people are waiting to hear a certain thing that have been uh-huh. fans of that record, yeah. and they want that stick click that's in the first drum yes, solo yes, that's yeah. done under the saxophone solo. Yeah, yeah. So now more often than not when I play What's that song... What's the story behind that? Do you know? I don't know. I was... I, when we met him and he was here for that one clinic that they did at Lipscomb, I really wanted to ask him... And I think somebody beat me to it and asked him that question, and he said he didn't remember. 
So we were all just left hanging. That was the night my son was born. That was 10, almost 10 years ago. Yeah, he was, yeah, I do remember exactly that clinic. It sounds deliberate to me because it's so in time. It is. It's not, done sound, yeah. yeah. I, I think it was probably deliberate. The other burning question I wanted to ask him is when Steely Dan did the documentary about the making of Asia, mm-hmm. they never mentioned Steve Gadd. Oh, wow. What's that about? Now, I didn't want to bring up negative stuff when I when I met Steve Gadd for the one and possibly only time, but man, probably the most remarkable drum track of their entire catalog, and they didn't mention the guy's name in the documentary. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Something. It took too much attention. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I, I usually play the first solo, the one that's sort of under the sax solo. The drums and the sax are soloing at the same time, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And then on the outro solo, I'll do my own thing for a while mm-hmm. and then break into that samba that's so great yeah. on the fade. And then that's how the band knows that I'm about to end it. Yeah. That's great. And then 12 Against Nature has an offshoot band that is a Chicago tribute. It's called Make Me Smile, and we do all the early Chicago Transit Authority mm-hmm. up, you know, the Danny Serafin years. Okay. Up till about 1980. And that's where it became really a different band anyway, so right, we don't right. do anything beyond that. The horn players in 12 Against Nature <coughs> were like, we need more work. I think so, okay, yeah. yeah. Out to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, and it they definitely, there's long and hard discussion about how long certain notes can be held wow. and how fast certain songs can be because the trumpet player particularly is just dying on that gig. Oh, my gosh. Um. Oh man, I, I'm going to post a lot of these. Uh, I'm going to uh, links and to these bands uh, because uh, anybody that's uh, living in Nashville or close to Nashville needs to go out and see uh, what's going on and the, the attention to detail and the musicianship uh, within this context is really great. And it, it's it kind of you'll begin to understand why you guys have been around for so long and the, and there's that growth that, or as far as the the following that this that you guys have it's awesome it's been a great thing cuz i'm i'm able to play music that i like with my friends yeah we actually what make a concept we make pretty good money <laughs> and we get to finish the gig and go home to our house right, it, right it's i mean i never thought i'd be playing in cover bands at this age, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, but I don't see a thing wrong with it. I'm having a great time. No, no. And you, you know, taking it seriously, and you're having fun, and yeah. you're growing it. And you're, you're, you, you said this is your uh, long players. Uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective. It's it's your graduate study of rock and roll, mm-hmm. I mean, for sure. And it, and not only as someone that wants to grow, constantly grow, and be uh, uh, ever evolving as a player. You also have a certain responsibility as a teacher. Sure. And when you and dive into the catalog the way you do. As a teacher to myself also, because yeah. when I first moved to Nashville, I uh, went around and met a lot of the drum teachers in town. And Larry London was still living, and I, I had met him in Memphis, and we had actually hung a little bit when he did a clinic. And I was the only teacher, so I got some alone time with him which was just so valuable in fact larry london was one of the guys that helped me get my dw drums endorsement oh, wow. but he didn't have time to teach me when i got to nashville and that's who i really wanted to study with but i i looked around and was trying to find a teacher in nashville and this was before chester and some of these guys had even right. come to town so 
I just stopped searching and I told myself, well, look, why don't I just start a lifetime goal of studying the greatest hits of everyone? Yeah. Because if someone has greatest hits, a whole lot of people agreed that there was something great about yeah. that track. Yeah. So this band has enabled me to really put that into action. But yeah. even before that, that's kind of what I do to further my own growth. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Man. And That's if you've got a good reason to study 70 classic albums, note for note, not to mention all the Steely Dan and the Chicago and mm -hmm. the stuff that Guilty Pleasures does, I've, got, I've gotten to check off almost all of my bucket list songs. Wow. You know, Hot for Teacher and oh. Tom Sawyer and Hocus Pocus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Frankenstein. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, all these songs that when I was a kid, I thought, man, I hope I can play that in a mm -hmm. band someday. And so I've gotten to do a lot of those. And Asia. Yeah. The band? No. The song. And we've done some band albums. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking the band Asia. No, right. the song Oh, Asia. not that one. Not that one. <laughs> and then, Actually, but, yeah. Guilty Pleasures has done a song by Asia. What's the, the uh, big... To uh, uh, Heat of the Moment? Yes. Yeah. We've done it. Why do I know that? <laughs> I, I only know it from the movie 40-Year-Old <coughs> uh, Virgin. No, I'm kidding. And, you know, nothing, nothing against the road gigs by any means if the right person called me now that my son's about to get out of high school man hey tom petty called me up and ferone was gonna retire i might i might get back on the road if the right gig came up know, you know, know all kidding aside i sure sure the situation is right i mean you get like you're excited about going to cabo san lucas i mean yeah, yeah. you get to see some incredible places and i it, think that really nice. the whole debate about the good music versus the bad music also enters into a debate about good gigs versus bad gigs. Yeah. You know, yeah. if a drummer or a guitar player or whomever, if a working musician is being treated badly mm -hmm. or disrespectfully, that's probably a bad gig. Right. And there aren't any checks and balances that really work to keep that from happening. So it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. And we just have to have the good sense to say no to those gigs and talk to each other about it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if necessary, boycott that artist right. until they learn to respect their drummer yeah yeah man it's been awesome talking to you um so much great information and uh that i think people are really going to enjoy hearing about and kind of your growth in town and what you've been doing yeah i'm glad it's to do really it cool it's really cool